Good morning, church family. Make your way to your seat. Aren't you thankful for the presence of God here? All right. God is good. Well, I'm excited, as Pastor Daniel said, to jump into our new series. But before we do, I want to just give you guys a little bit of an update on where we are with the property. I know you guys want to, to know where we're at on that. And this week, as my friend Jeremy says, the one who's selling us the property, he says, it's getting real. And, uh, and it got real this week because we put up those orange rezoning signs on our property. I think it's okay for me to kind of let the cat out of the bag and let you know kind of where it's at at this point uh, because uh, I was under a non-disclosure agreement in the early beginnings of this process. But it's, uh, as I told you, five minutes from here. It's right here on Sunbeam Road. And so if you drive down Sunbeam, you're like, well, where at on Sunbeam? Believe me, if you go down and turn left on Sunbeam and keep driving for about a half a mile or so on the left, you'll know the property because you're going to see a whole lot of orange signs going up and down through. And so essentially what that means is now we are on their schedule. We did this application way back last year. But I'll tell you what, when you're dealing with the city, it's hurry up and wait. And if you've ever dealt with a city, you know what I'm talking about. And uh, we're finally on the schedule. And uh, so we have two meetings, one coming up at the end of this month and then one toward the end of next month before we get the zoning finalized. Please be praying over this. It's not an, I mean, I say it's a done deal. It's a done deal in heaven, but we've got to now walk it out, right? And so we're really just trusting God to give us favor and to lead every step of this process. So here's what I ask of you. I ask for favor for, for city council. Pray that God will just really move on their hearts. Pray that God leads me as I navigate the various things that I feel that God is leading us to. I did reach out to some of the community members and the HOA that I knew would be getting the mailer because anytime they do a rezoning, has anyone ever re received a mailer from a rezoning and they tell you about the rezoning? So everyone in that neighborhood would have got the rezoning notification. And so I met with their HOA. Uh, I'm also on the HOA of my neighborhood. So I kind of knew what questions to expect and we had a great talk. It was really good. And so we're already trying to connect with that community there, and we let them know that we are there to serve. We are there to be an asset to the community. And so, uh, but I do ask for each and every one of your prayers and that the Holy Spirit would go before us in all of this. Amen? So that's a little update on what's happening. That means we'll probably close somewhere around maybe the end of March or the beginning of April, and then we'll be able to break ground and bless God. Isn't that exciting? 12 years in the making. If you've been with me the whole entire 12 years, you're like, oh, Jesus. And uh, he's so good. He's never early, but he's never late. And so we believe that God is doing what he's doing in his perfect timing. Amen? All right, y'all ready for to receive God's word? Okay, good deal. Well, today we are uh, starting a new series, which I have called Resilient, which is a verse-by-verse -verse study in the book of James. And let me just tell you why I chose that series title. Resilience is a quality 
that we are all going to need, and especially in today's world. I don't know if you have recognized this yet or not, but life doesn't get any easier. Hello? Now, that's not a statement of negativity. It's just a reality that our world is broken. Now, since the fall of creation, we have continued to experience the, the brokenness of sin and its effects on our lives. And in the midst of brokenness, resilience becomes a trait not only to be desired, but like one that we've got to have. Now, I've given a subtitle to my series, which is actually how I define resilience. Resilience is strength that prevails. It's the ability to jump back. It's to, to, to withstand the storms of life and to emerge stronger on the other side. Now, I want you to consider this, if you would. We live in a world where unexpected, unexpected trials, disappointments, and hardships are inevitable. I mean, you can just go to any news channel or scroll your social media feed, and you will be bombarded with stories of pain, suffering, and uncertainty. But here's the thing. Resilience isn't about us trying to avoid those challenges or pretend as if they don't exist. It's about us facing them head on with courage and faith, knowing that God is with us every single step of the way. Now, James understood this all too well. When he wrote the letter to the early church, he did so with a deep understanding of what it meant to persevere in the face of adversity. And my prayer through this series is that God would not only help us to get a, a greater understanding of what it means to be resilient, but that he would deepen our faith, that he would strengthen our resolve. And cause us to live an empowered life as resilient followers of Christ. Amen? Amen? Now, today's message is just going to be an introduction into the series. Next week, we're going to dive into what James has to say in his letter. But first, I felt like you needed to have some backstory. And this is going to help us set the foundation for where we're going to be going over the next several weeks. And it will bring about a better understanding as to some of the things that James says. And so let me just start with this, because not everyone's on the same page on this, and that's okay, all right? First of all, James, he's not the same James that you have read about in the Gospels, okay? Because so a lot of people think that, that James that wrote the book of James is the James that we read about as one of the original 12 apostles, and, and he, that's not him. Um, that, that James was the brother of John, who is the son of Zebedee. But the James that we're going to be studying here is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Now, if you're new to the Bible, you may not have realized that Jesus did have brothers. He also had sisters. And James was one of his brothers. They both shared the same biological mother, but Joseph was his father because, of course, Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, which is what we call the Immaculate Conception. There's your $5 word of the day. 
Now, the first time that we look at Scripture and it mentions Jesus' family, they seem to have doubts about him. One of those uh, places in Scripture is found early on in Mark chapter 3. And the Scripture says that right after Jesus had gathered together a, a crowd and he had appointed the 12 apostles, in verse 21 of Mark 3, it says, When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. Now, can you imagine that, trying to take charge of Jesus? But how many times have we been guilty of that very thing? I'm talking about us imposing our own desires and agendas upon him, thinking that we can get him to conform to the way that things ought to be. And so they tried to control Jesus, and then they said, he's out of his mind. Now, mind you, this right here, Jesus, this is Jesus' family we're talking about. And so certainly his half-brother, James, would have been one of those with whom the Bible's talking about. And again, I'm just setting the stage so that you can get a better understanding of the things that James writes about later on in his epistle. His writings aren't from someone who has always been a believer. Now, maybe you're here and you're thinking, man, how in the world could they not have known who Jesus was, that he was the son of God? I mean, like, they lived with him. Like, surely they saw him do a miracle. Or what about the fact that he, they saw how he conducted his life, like, never sinning? Hello? I mean, you think that, that right there would have just clued them in as to who he was. Well, let's just talk about that. First of all, Jesus' first miracle was at Cana, whenever he changed the water into wine at the request of his mother. And even then, he told his mother, he said, Mom, it's, it's too early. It's not my time yet. It wasn't quite time for the miracles. And so here's something that, that you need to know about God if you don't already know this. With God, timing is everything. And so if you're going to have faith in God, you better have faith in his timing as well. And so, of course, his family would have never seen him doing miracles as a teenager. It wasn't yet time for his ministry. Now, just as a side note, because the teacher in me feels like I need to point this out. If Jesus, in his 20s, still had to wait before his public ministry was to come to fruition, which was at the age of 30. What's that teach us? What's that say to us? And I mention this because there are a lot of people in ministry who they weren't sent, they just went. I'm talking about those who jumped the gun on their calling, whose actions were premature. You see, it's important, it's vital that we recognize the timing of God. Because any time that you give birth to something prematurely, you run the risk of it being unhealthy and possibly not even surviving. Jesus understood this. And he set an example for us to follow. But what about the fact that Jesus never sinned? I mean, again, shouldn't that have clued his family in on the fact that he was the Messiah? Not necessarily. And, and, and here's why. Like, during that time, a Jewish man's greatest 
aspiration was to become a Pharisee. I mean, their devotion to the law of Moses was just simply unwavering zeal. And so from Jesus' family's perspective, it could have appeared as if Jesus was just a really good Jew. And so staying away from sin would have simply been just common practice. I mean, the, the perfection that they saw could have just been misinterpreted as him being a great student of the law. But here's the truth of the matter. Jesus wasn't just appearing to be perfect. Friend, he was perfect in every way. Which is why Jesus once challenged a crowd to name one single sin that he had ever committed, and they couldn't. The only accusation that they could give him is say, well, you being a man have made yourself to be God. And he did say that, but guess what? He was God, so he wasn't sinning by saying that. But now let me just fast forward, and I'm going to take you to another place in the gospel in the book of John chapter 7, where once again we see the doubt that existed in his family, and specifically his brothers in this case. In John chapter 7, verses 3 and 5, Jesus' brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And then the scripture says, for not even his brothers believed in him. Now watch this. Based on what we know from the Bible, James was likely the oldest of Jesus' brothers. He would have been the second born to his mother, Mary. And so not only would he have been in agreement with what they were saying, he likely was the one who was saying it. And if you'll notice with what's being said here, there's a certain tone to it. A tone of doubt, but there's also a hint of mockery. They essentially said, if you are who you say you are, then why hide? Go let it be made known. Only they weren't encouraging him. They were mocking him, which is why the scripture says that they didn't believe in him. And again, I'm only highlighting this because I want you to see who James was then versus who James is when he writes his letter. Because the transformation that we see take place in James, I feel like, adds even more weight to what he writes. Because this was someone who had his doubts about Jesus. But what was the game changer? What was the game changer for James? What caused him to go from becoming this doubter to being this fervent believer, one who eventually dies for his beliefs? I mean, in order to die for something, I know for me, I'm going to have to be a hundred percent convinced, right? I'm going to tell you what it was. It was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I just want to take this opportunity to expound on this thought because I've heard a lot of believers, even this week, say things like, the story of the resurrection was fabricated. It was just all a big lie. 
But I want you to know something, and I want you to consider something. Why would the apostles lie? I mean, whenever someone lies, they do so for selfish reasons. And so if they lied, what was their motive? What did they get out of it? I'll tell you what they got out of it. They got misunderstanding, rejection, persecution, torture, and martyrdom. Like hardly a list of perks, right? But they gladly gave their lives because they witnessed the resurrection. I want to take you to another place in Scripture. I know we're jumping a lot of different places. Next week, we'll dive into James. But I want you to look with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 7, Paul writes these words. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And what I just read you is what is commonly known as the Corinthian Creed. This would have been something that the early church would have recited often. But what I want to bring your attention to here is who Jesus revealed himself to. First of all, we know that he appeared to Mary. Right? Now, it doesn't mention Mary specifically here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but we know based on the Gospels that Mary was the very first person to visit his grave, and consequently, she was the, the first to see him after the resurrection also. But consider this. The scripture says that Mary stood outside of the tomb weeping. Now, the Greek word uh, for weeping there carries a much stronger word than our, in the Greek than it does in our English language. Really, it means deep mourning and lamenting. Like Mary likely would have probably ripped her clothes and put her hand down in the dirt and grabbed a handful of it and threw it on top of her head as that would have been the custom during that time. And I'm sharing all this with you because I want you to get a picture of the state of those and what state they were in when Jesus revealed himself to them. For example, right before Jesus' crucifixion, Peter openly denied that Christ, that he knew him. And the scripture says that Peter then went out and wept bitterly. And then you have Paul, who before his encounter with Christ had Christians killed. So you have Mary, the mourner. You've got Peter, the denier. And you've got Paul, the murderer. Now why would Jesus... Reveal himself to those specific individuals. I want to present this truth to you. Christ reveals himself to those who need to see him the most. And here's the thing. It would make sense. Like if I were Jesus, you know what I would have done? I would have went straight to the Sanhedrin, buddy. 
I'd be like, hey, boss, can't keep a, God, a good man down, especially a God man. I mean, like, you know, I would have went and vindicated myself. But that's not what Jesus did. That's what his brothers told him to do, by the way. Let's go show yourself. But Jesus didn't. He went to those who needed to see him the most. And friend, I want you to know that in your darkest hour, Jesus is near to the brokenhearted. He is near to the widow who is grieving. He's near to the parent whose child has went a different direction than what you had hoped and prayed for. He's near to the person who just lost their job. He's near to the addict who wants to be free but can't seem to get free. Like he is near. And when he comes near, everything changes. And that's exactly what we see with James. Because from everything that we have read and we know about James, like James was categorically an unbeliever, a mocking unbeliever. Yet Jesus reveals himself to James. Why? Because Jesus knew that James needed to see him. That's why the scripture says that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Then he appeared to James. See, James didn't do anything that would warrant a visit from Jesus. For that matter, neither did Peter nor, nor Paul. But God's grace reaches out to those in the depths of uncertainty, offer them a chance to see and believe. And I feel like this right here is a good place for me to share this truth, that Jesus is nearer than you realize. Even in the moments when you have doubts or your vision is clouded with disbelief, he patiently waits to reveal himself to us in meaningful ways. And I just want to say to whoever needs to hear this, Jesus will meet you right where you are. He offers us an invitation to experience his reality, his presence. And it's in those moments that we might least expect it that he then comes and it transforms our understanding and brings us into a close relationship with himself. Just as he did with James, he offers us evidence of his love, of his power, and of his strength, asking only that we would open our hearts to receive him. Now, for the rest of today's message, I don't have a really long message today. I want to just kind of continue and camp right here at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And I want to just highlight something that Paul says in, in, in verse 8. Verse 8, it says that Jesus appeared to Paul last of all. Then in verse 9 and verse 10, Paul writes, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. 
Let me say this about James. By the grace of God, James became what James became. Friends, when we read about the story of James, it's a story of grace. I mean, do you think that if someone were to script James' story, that maybe they would somehow just connect it with his family ties to Jesus? But James didn't come in as one entitled. He came in as a recipient of grace. And I love this. Because here's the thing about grace. If grace called you, grace will sustain you. Hey, I am what I am by the grace of God. The mer- my merit didn't get me in, and my merit can't keep me. See, here's the thing about grace. And it's what the Apostle Paul was referencing here in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10, when he said, his grace toward me was not in vain. I think the NIV there says, his grace toward me was without effect. And that phrase there, without effect, is the Greek word kenos. And it means empty, vain, ineffective, or useless. In other words, God's grace produced profound substance. It accomplished everything that it was supposed to accomplish. Now, what's that mean practically? That means that his grace becomes sufficient in all things, in every need, in every lack, in every misstatement, in every misjudgment, in every foolishness, in every mistake. In every sin and everything that you hate about your past and maybe the things that you still don't like about your present. In every problem that you've got. In every crisis that you've come up against. Against every problem with your family that's about to send you over the edge. Every single bit of it has went to create a space for grace. The question is. Will you leave it there empty, or will you let him fill it up? I um, love to think about maybe what that encounter looked like whenever Jesus revealed himself to James. The Bible doesn't tell us, because I think that's probably because it's none of our business. Sometimes you've got to look at what the Bible says, but I always think it's interesting about the things that the Bible doesn't say because that right there speaks volumes as well. But I can't help but wonder if maybe the words that came or the thoughts that came to James's mind were something like, wow, I was wrong. Like I made a terrible mistake. And then I wonder... If Jesus didn't say back to him, it's okay, James. I specialize in mistakes. See, here's the takeaway from today's lesson. If you don't catch anything, catch this. The power of the resurrection means that nothing but the tomb is meant to be empty. Come on, can we just celebrate that right now? Praise God. No empty promise of God, no empty heartache, no loss, no betrayal, no rejection, no bondage, no sickness, no season of doubt ever needs to sit there empty. 
Church, I want to make sure that you catch this. Your life may be challenging, but it was never meant to be empty. Everything that you've ever faced or come up against in life, it's to create a space for grace. And I can promise you this, his grace is sufficient for every need. And it empowers us to live a life of redemption, a life of purpose. How does it do that? Because that's the power of the resurrection. Just one sight of the resurrected Jesus and James turned into the man that you and I are going to meet over the next several weeks. Just one glimpse and his life was completely transformed. But what I want to leave you with this morning is the fact that the same Jesus who appeared to James all those years ago is still revealing himself to people today. Even in the midst of struggles and doubts and uncertainties, Jesus is near, extending his hand of grace and invitation to each and every one of us. He meets us right where we are in the depths of our brokenness, our pain, and our despair. And just like he did for James, he offers us evidence of his love, of his power, and his strength. All that he asks is that we would open our hearts to receive him. Amen? I want to ask everyone to stand with me if you would. Because maybe you're here today and you've been living with doubts, fears, uncertainties, just like James did. Maybe you've been carrying the weight of your mistakes, your failures and your regrets. Feeling as if there's no hope for a better tomorrow. Well, I want you to know there is hope. There is redemption. There is grace. And so right now, in this moment, I want to invite you to open your heart to Jesus. Allow him to come in and to fill those empty spaces to heal those broken places, and to transform your life from the inside out. Let his grace be sufficient for you, just as it's been for countless throughout history. Come on, if that's you this morning and you want to take that step of surrendering your all to Christ, I want to invite you to do that very thing with me right now. With head bowed and eyes closed and with one heart, Let's all pray this prayer of surrender together. Pray this out loud. Lord Jesus, I need you. Come near. I need your grace over my life. Forgive me, Lord, for doubt, for the uncertainty and the disbelief. I put my faith in you. I put my trust in you. Jesus, I believe you are who you said you are. That you are the Son of God. That you died on the cross for the sin of the world and my sin. Jesus, I believe that you rose from the grave just as your word says. 
And now I want to live my life to know you and to make you known. In Jesus' name, amen.